When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. What's up, everybody? Nick Larson with the Project Upland Podcast. Thank you for joining us this week for another episode. As always, we are brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Thank you to them for making this show possible. And thanks again to our listeners for continuing to listen to the Project Upland Podcast and provide us your thoughts, feedback, suggestions, helping us make this show better. This week, we've got a cool episode, did a fun interview with somebody who decided to put a little different spin on their 2017 Upland bird season, and it's a pretty cool one. So if you haven't, uh, if you haven't caught up with him and his story yet, I think you're going to enjoy this week's episode and uh, enjoy the ideas and possibilities of what maybe perhaps your 2018 season could look like if you uh, if you decide to do what Scott did this year. So 
we will uh, we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, I've got a couple things I want to chat about first. Um, no hunt, no real hunting report this week for me. I was uh, in the deer stand last weekend, and uh, unfor- unfortunately not successful yet. I'm gonna go one more weekend, I think, in Minnesota, and hopefully get back out in the birdwoods because I'm uh, I'm missing that. And uh, I do get excited every year for deer camp, but I've sort of had my dose of it, and I'm ready to get back out in the birdwoods. So maybe uh, maybe a late season report coming your way shortly. I uh, I hope to put some of the tips and tactics that I talked to Ann Janderna in last week's episode uh, to use coming up. So if you haven't heard that, uh, late season rough grouse hunting podcast with Ann Janderna of Northwind Enterprises, check that out. That was last week. Uh, Project Upland related, we've got a couple things going on. Uh, A new film came out this week. Uh, was a collaboration between Project Upland and Onyx Hunt. And I actually had the good fortune of being involved with the production and the creation of the film. Uh, My dog and I got to uh, be in the film, which was very cool. Um, And I also also got to help with some of the, like I said, some of the production and creation of that. So that was very cool. Uh, That film came out this week, and I think it turned out excellent. So check that out if you haven't seen it. Uh, good shout out to Onyx Hunt. I continue to use my Onyx Hunt maps, pretty much everything I do outdoors, whether it be deer hunting, bird hunting, uh, whatever it is, continue to find it extremely useful. And I love Onyx maps as I think a lot of you do. Uh, the feedback has been quite good on anything that we've posted related to Onyx Maps. So uh, continue to, to use them and or check them out if you haven't already. Uh, and then another thing Project Upland related is one of the films that was released recently, uh, actually the film on falconry called Sport of Kings, kind of a unique and different film that has been nominated for Pro Hunting Film of the Year by themonocular.com themonocular.com I wasn't too familiar with that website but they are I believe a pretty big hunting website out of uh, Britain and they have some films that they've nominated they're doing a 2017 award series and fortunately one of the Project Upland films has been nominated so if you haven't seen the Sport of Kings film yet I would encourage you to go to the Project Upland Facebook page, and the link is sticky to the top of the Project Upland Facebook page, uh, link to the monocular where you can go and sign in there and then view the films and the other films. There's some really cool films on there. The Project Upland film is up against a uh, film from Matthew's Archery. Uh, I believe there's a Yeti film for one of the categories, there's some really big name films. So even to uh, to be associated with with some of those films is a pretty big recognition and, and honor for for AJ and and the crew at Project Upland. So that's very cool. Uh, so go there, check out the film Sport of Kings, and vote for it if you like it. If you think it's the best, vote for it. We hope you do. It's a uh, it's a neat film, and and uh, I think it's getting some recognition for that. All right, I think with all of that said probably time to 
jump right into today's episode. So today I interviewed uh, a fellow Duluthian. He grew up in Duluth, Minnesota, just like myself. And he got into upland bird hunting a little bit later in life, late teens, early 20s. We kind of talk about that a little bit. And he has taken to it uh, like a fish to water, kind of the same way that I did. And uh, he, it's his number one passion right now. And he came up with a pretty crazy, I guess you could call it crazy. You could also call it cool um, idea on how to take his number one passion and turn the hunting season of 2017 into one to absolutely remember. Uh, he is in the kind of in the middle of his season right now, and he's transitioning as he is living out of a van that he basically bought, gutted, and custom built to suit his hunting needs. And he started, uh, I think September 1st, he started in, in Montana and then he came back to Minnesota, which was uh, part of his trip. And now with the weather turning and the deer season's kicking in in Minnesota, he's, he's going on his scheduled, uh, journey. He's going to head South and he's going to kind of follow different bird seasons South all the way down to Arizona. Uh, I won't get into too much detail because we talked about it on the show, but Needless to say, pretty awesome idea. Uh, Scott, he's got a, he's got, it's just him and his dog and he's met up with some friends and buddies along the way and some strangers and there's lots of cool stories involved with it. But uh, at this point in his trip, he's having a blast and I believe that will absolutely continue. Um, I'm not going to say anything more because I don't even want to spoil the details. I think Scott does a very good job of describing what he's doing, why he's doing it, and how he's doing it. So with all that said, I think we'll jump right into it. And at this time, I would like to welcome Scott Johnson to the Project Upland podcast. All right, Scott, welcome to the Project Upland podcast. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for asking. We're uh, happy to have you uh, on the Project Upland podcast this evening. I think we'll have a We'll have a neat conversation about uh, your 2017 hunting season, and uh, I know you got a lot of stuff going on, and you're kind of in the middle of a, one of many transitions, actually, right now, so that's kind of cool. Um, oh, yeah. I guess before we, uh, before we dive into all, that, all the, uh, the fun stuff and the details, um, why don't you tell, tell us a little bit about kind of where you're from and how you got started into... I'll say upland hunting, but I mean, if if it was a different kind of hunting that got you into upland hunting, just give us a little bit of your background, kind of how you wound up uh, as a passionate upland bird hunter. Yeah, well, so I, so I grew up in uh, Duluth, Minnesota, where I've been spending the last uh, six or eight weeks of this trip, um, and I like I, I didn't grow up in a hunting family. Um, I grew up in a, they were an anti-hunting family by any means, but they just didn't do it. Um, and I fished a lot with my old man growing up and I was always a outdoorsy kid and liked to be outside and kind of in my kind of late teens early 20s just kind of wanted to kind of get into hunting to some degree uh but like didn't know anything right so like I had to kind of kind of find my way and figure it out on my own um and I I suppose I ended up probably upland hunting and actually grouse hunting specifically because that's what we had up here 
Um, if I lived somewhere else, I have no doubt I w- it would have been pheasants or whatever else was available there. Yeah. Uh, but up here it was rough grouse. And I think what led me there was mostly the accessibility of it because, you know, when you don't know anything and you just start reading Internet articles and looking around, everything can seem really um, kind of experienced and I would think cost prohibitive to get into. You know, it's like, oh, I want to go deer hunting. Well, you got to buy, you know, at least a somewhat expensive deer rifle yeah. and a whole bunch of other stuff and a stand and you got to find a place. And, you know, and if you don't know, the first thing about it, that seems like a lot. You know, to yeah, not to out. mention if you actually get a deer too, you know, that's a that's a little bit different than cleaning the grouse. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's completely, it's a whole, you know. Um, and then, you know, likewise with, with waterfowl hunting, you know, it's like, well, how do I know which swamp to go to and which swamp not to go to and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I think uh, yeah, how I ended up with grouse hunting was, you know, really all you need is like any kind of shotgun and like an orange hat. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if you if you got nothing, you can go and pick up like a $50 single shot at any gun store and put an orange hat on your head and go do it. Um, yep. And that's. That's really what, what drew me to it. And I was fortunate that I ended up finding kind of a, uh, like a family friend through my parents' business who was a pretty avid grouse hunter. Um, and he had a couple of dogs and he actually loaned me a gun for like kind of the first fall I wanted to go out. So, um, he took me out about three times and kind of showed me what to look for and what to do and said, you know, I'm, go, go do it. Go have at it. And then I just kind of, it, it bit me and I kind of stuck with it ever since. So. Cool. How like how old were you at that time? Maybe I missed it, but how old were you when you when you really kind of kicked off grouse hunting? I think nineteen or twenty. I want to okay. say. Okay. All right. Cool. So yeah. So you had. Yeah. So you were at the point where that's because it's interesting. Yeah, you're at the point where you know you obviously had a driver's license, you had some mobility, you had some freedom, and you could you could you had a mentor. Obviously, he sort of loaned you a gun, got you started in the right direction, then you were you were basically free to go go after it, go, you know, and yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, and like I said, you know, growing up I'd you know, lots of camping and boundary waters trips, so, you know, going out into the woods was not a new experience at all. Um so it was just I had to kind of learn how to look at them in a different way and how to find birds in them because it was never that was never original goal of the other times I've been out. So um it was just yeah, like I said, I you know I had a I had, a, I had a truck and not lots of money, but I could scrape it up, you know, gas money, money for shells and stuff together to go. So um, yeah. I had like just just enough to go do it, basically. Yeah, yep, yep, I hear you. I mean, you know, we both of us grew up in Duluth, and and we really had the benefit of it is a pretty outdoorsy city. So even if you weren't specifically hunting, like you said, you know, you made some trips to the BWCA, and so we get, ex- I think we get exposure to a lot of that stuff. Um, at a young age, which is which is helpful, but but again, taking that first step and actually, like you said, going out and and going in the woods with a gun in your hands, trying to find a bird. I mean, it's a it's a completely different scenario, and so yeah, it's a it's not an easy thing to do. But fortunately, you had uh, you had you had some help along the way, as as I did as well. And I remember for me, it was I got I got a a, a little bit earlier start grouse hunting. My dad and my uncle, they weren't really serious hunters, but they took me when I was young, and I think they were probably surprised at how hooked I became on grouse hunting. I don't even know, you know, <laughs> they have no idea what, what got into me, really. And so, for me, it was a long wait 
from my first grouse hunting experience until I finally had my driver's license. When I got my driver's license, it was like, wow, I could just, you know, my buddies and I, we could go hunting. You can just uh, get at it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that made a big difference, and, and that was a while ago. But, no, that's cool. I always like to hear um, how people got into it, and it's such an important thing right now, like with hunter numbers in general going down, and, and nobody has really sort of cracked the code on on – what it's going to take to to get a steady source of new people into hunting, but uh, I think you stand out as a pretty good example. You just got interested in it and you just went and did it, and, and I think we'll, we'll yeah. talk a lot about that today too. So, well, and I, I think like like to your point too about where where we each grew up in Duluth. I think the biggest like you hear a lot of uh, people talk about access to hunting land or access to you know habitat, um, and we had the benefit up here. I mean, I my buddy's house here, and he said I can drive 15 minutes and get to a spot that I know is going to hold birds in it. You know, it gets flooded a lot, so it's not always the best place to go. But I can, you know, as long as it takes me to go to the grocery store, I can get there. Um, whereas I think that's a probably an obstacle that a lot of people run into where they maybe move somewhere else or they grew up somewhere else where, you know, instead of 15 minutes, it's an hour and a half. And all of a sudden going, you know, go, going to look for birds doesn't seem like quite as maybe a good idea. Yep, absolutely. That's that's always been the biggest benefit of living here. Um, yeah, close by hunting covers, and I, I know that you and I have hunted some of the same areas over the years. And and you you start start. You know, I started 15 minutes out of out of Duluth, and and I'd hunt those spots. And quickly, you learn. You go a little bit further, and you can find some different stuff, and it gets a little bit less pressure. But yeah, having that. It's nice to have that variety, and like because you never know how much time you have. If you only have an hour, it's nice to know that you can buzz out there and get a hunt in before sunset. So that's that's awesome. Oh yeah, and, and I did that a lot in my early years. You know, I had a lot of I'd sneak out or I'd get done with work at like three o'clock or three thirty, and I'd have my stuff in the car, and I would go straight out. Some, sometimes there were only like half hour walks, but I was so well, still am. But at this time, I was so excited. <laughs> yeah. I was like. I was like, I'm gonna go get that half hour. I can get it in, you know. And most of the time, I didn't find anything, but I still went and did it. So, yep, yep. You and me both. Yeah, I've done done a lot of a uh, lot of short hunts where it's. It, a lot of people would say it's. Is it really worth the the gas money and time to do that? And the, t- I, the two hours of driving to hunt for thirty minutes. Yeah. Yep, yep, <laughs> yep. And I I imagine you and I would both answer that the same way. And it absolutely was worth it for sure. Well, cool. let's uh, let's fast forward now to uh, yeah. 2017 hunting season, and I'm going to dive in a little bit to what you've got going on this year. You have uh, you've sort of uh, changed the game a little bit for you and your dog. Uh, you guys have had a lot of time to hunt this year. Tell us, yeah, uh, tell us, tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> um, well, so that was so. Basically, we um, are living in a van that I've converted into a little mini camping gear hauling rig, essentially, so that we can um, go wherever, whenever, and have everything with us. Um, the flip side of that is I also left my job back in, well, end of August, early September, um, You know, wor- worked a bunch, saved up a bunch of money so we could do it for basically the entirety of a hunting season. So essentially from September 1st, which is when a lot of states – uh, not just Minnesota, but, you know, Montana, the Dakotas. A lot of states have some bird hunting of some form that kicks off on September 1st. Yeah. And then all the way until February 15th, which is the last day you can shoot a quail in Arizona, which is the end of them, basically. 
Ah, cool. So, so that's your that's your finish line. Yeah, uh, you know when exactly I'll get down there to start those that part of the finish line. I don't know. You know, it's kind of. Yep. Um, my, my mental plan was once I left Minnesota that I was, you know, it was just kind of an open-ended thing from there. So what the, the main kind of centerpiece of my trip was I wanted to spend all of October hunting rough grouse and the ducks while they were here anyway, um, in my kind of, you know, home stomping grounds. And then once that was over to just kind of go and chase, chase everything, you know, south and figure it out as we went. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, so you're, you're kind of well into the season. We'll talk a little bit about what you've done so far and uh, what you have coming up next. Um, you're not doing this alone. you got your best buddy along with you every day. Tell us a little bit about your uh, four-legged friend. Well, yeah, so I'm the I'm, I'm one of the grouse hunting heathens who hunts with a flushing dog, you know. <laughs> you see, every time you see grouse hunting stuff, there's and I, you're a setter guy, right? Yep, I've right. got a setter. Yeah. Yep, the traditionalist grouse dog. So, um, and that kind of goes back to when I first, when I when I got him, Watson. He's a British Labrador. So, you know, for those who aren't familiar with that, it's basically just a lab that is um, the more traditionalist bloodlines, I guess you could say. Um, they tend to be smaller on average, um, more muscle mass and less body fat for their size than, like, say, the American breeding would be. Um, yeah. I, a lot of people will argue it. I, I struggle to say that they're a better dog than an American lab. I don't feel that at all. Um, I just, it's just a different standard. So, um, I think they make a little bit better universal dog, if you would. So if you're someone like me who likes to hunt a lot of, you know, different upland stuff and waterfowl and mix it up and you're going to have a lot of different cover types and terrain types. Um, I think they're, they're more inherent athleticism, if you would holds up better to those changes than say if you have like a, an 80 pound dog that's meant to fetch ducks in really cold weather. Um, now that being said, you know, he's a fantastic upland dog, but once the lakes start to ice up a little bit, the cold water really sucks water out of them if we're a duck or goose hunting, but that's just, you know, the fact that he doesn't have the body fat that other dogs would have. So, um, yeah. And I got him, um, well, he'll be five in January 1st. He's He's a new year's baby. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. But, um, and I got him mostly cause he was going to be my first gun dog and I didn't want to get, um, you know, a dog that I couldn't train myself. I've always been kind of a, a do it yourself kind of guy. So I didn't want to get myself in the situation where I got like a pointing breed that maybe I was, you know, was in over my head with, so to sure. speak. Um, and then on the flip side of that, you know, labs are kind of the traditional do all dog, right? You know, you can, you can you can do anything with a lab. So that was part of it too, is I wanted to not just have a, a grouse dog, but I wanted to have a dog that could bust up cattails, pheasant hunting, or you know, fetch ducks out of an icy river or whatever what I whatever I decided I was gonna go do, that dog was gonna get in the truck and go with me. So Yeah, awesome. No, that's uh, that's uh you know, that's one of the one of the neat things I I thought about before asking you to come on the podcast. I mean I knew you I knew you had a you had a lab and you do a lot of upland hunting. You do, you do obviously do some waterfowling too, but there's, there's absolutely a lot of different dogs that can do a lot of different things. And, and we, you know, 
part of what we want to do at Project Upland is to expose people to that. So I, I don't know I don't know a lot about labs. Obviously, I think most people are familiar with with labs because they do have such a such a especially people that hunt. I mean, I mean they have such oh, yeah. a, a long long history here. But I will say that Watson is an absolutely stunning looking lab he's just i try not to tell him that because i think it goes to his head but (laughs) yeah yeah i could i could see that happening i i try to uh try not to tell my dog things like that either but no seriously he's he's got the jet black coat and he's super muscled up just looks really sleek and you know i mean it's just i think i think a lot of people that probably listen to this podcast you know you can tell a a good looking dog watson watson is a good looking dog he's uh he's he's a hunting machine yeah so so he's five years old and he's your first dog uh where did you where did you get him from uh he's out of royalty british kennels which is just down in malacca minnesota um so kind of kind of the middle of the state and um john pesek's the owner and breeder down there and He's, he's relatively well known in the in the Midwest in the lab community, and he's got he's got a lot of good dogs that come out of there. So, cool. Yeah, that's that's uh, I certainly uh, certainly he he's breeding uh, some some great looking dogs. That's for sure. What? Uh, how much does Watson weigh? Um, sixty five pounds is kind of like his ideal fighting weight, if you would. Sure. Yeah. Um, after sitting around on my mom's couch for the last nine days, he might have been a few pounds over that, but you know. It's a, Happens, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and like I struggle to say, like he should be is sixty five pounds because he doesn't hold weight very, very well. I gotta pound a lot of food and a lot of calories on him to keep him up by that sixty five pounds. So we, um, like, if I run him say three, four, five days in a row, which is a long time for any dog, but you know, yeah, it's it, it, if you're if you're in the the prime time chunk of the season, it's kind of, you know, rest days don't sound like good ideas sometimes, but yep, <laughs> so, yep. uh, but yeah, so I mean, he never gets like below 61, 62. I try to keep a pretty good eye on his weight. So if he's starting to get like too thin, you know, no matter how good the situation, the hunting situations are, we'll kind of pump the brakes for a day and let him kind of bulk a little fat back up. So. Sure. Yeah, that's it's one of those things. You know, I I'm on my first bird dog too, and I imagine we he's three. I imagine we've kind of learned a lot of the same things. You know, you obviously you pay you pay a lot of attention to your dogs, and you can you can tell when when things are off and things are not right. And it's just one of those things that, especially when you spend so much time with them and you and you see them hunting. I mean, I think it's 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 not always easy, but but you if you pay attention well enough, you you start to notice things and you can tell when when things are off for sure. Oh yeah, and, and you know every dog. I, I had the luxury of the the job I left. I was working at the Minnesota Horse and Hunt Club south of the cities, so I had the had the good chance to see a lot of dogs over the year and a half I was there. And you know every dog has its own hunting style, right? You know the different types of pointers and different pointer breeds hunt differently. And I noticed a lot of labs hunt. You know, some have kind of a, a medium trot, and some hunt a lot harder than others. And uh, Watson's definitely on the hard charging end of that spectrum, so he doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't have like a take it easy kind of mode when we're out in the yeah. woods. <laughs> All right, so let's let's just dive into a little bit um, with uh, you know grouse hunting with a flusher, because yeah, I think I think a lot of the conversations that we've had so far on the podcast tend to revolve around pointing dogs and stuff. So I think that'd be interesting. Now, obviously, 
one of the main goals for hunting with a flushing dog is keeping them in gun range. So talk about talk about the range that Watson hunts with, and then maybe on top of that, like the control that you have to impose or or do not have to impose on him to keep him in that range. Yeah. So and. I think if you talk to a lot of people who hunt with flushing dogs, and maybe this is just something that's grown with me and him over the years, but a lot of people focus on keeping them close, right? You know, they're going to find the bird and put the bird up, and so he's got to be within, like, 10 yards, right? Um, And depending on the cover we're in, sometimes I'll hold them up to that. Um, We have about, I would say, seven or eight different whistle commands that I use with him. Um, You know, some are real simple casts, some are you know, hunt, retrieve this way. Some are just kind of to rein them in, if you would, not necessarily to call them all the way back, um, which is something that has grown over the years so that we can basically work a cover kind of in stealth mode, I call it, you know, without having to use, like, uh, birds learn what human voices sound like and they run away from them the more the season goes on. So it's kind of nice to be able to get into a cover and communicate with my dog without using actual words. I find that helps a lot in some places. Um, but one thing I've noticed with him too is, you know, whenever a bird flushes from a flushing dog, it's important to remember that they're reacting to the dog and not necessarily the hunter, right? So when you hunt with a, a pointing dog, granted the shots are always much more controlled and you can kind of manipulate the shot a little bit, right? Because the dog throws the bird on point and you can kind of control the angle you walk into the point from and kind of leaving the bird only so many escape routes. Whereas, of course, that's not really the case with me. The bird's yep. just going to see the dog and blow up in the air. Um, so what I've tended to do is not necessarily keep them always in that, like, close 5 to 10-yard range. Um, sometimes I've let them, like, work an entire swamp patch or a piece of woods cover at ranges some people would think is ridiculous, like kind of in that 60, 70-yard range, which is, you know, absurd, right? Like, what what, sure. you know, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. You know, yep. He's going to bump birds all over the place. Um but what I found is at that distance, when a bird, well, grouse anyway, flushes from him, is that it'll flush away from him, and I would say two-thirds to three-fourths of them come back towards me in some direction, presenting kind of a quartering-in shot, if you would. So although the you know Watson himself is way outside a gun range, and he, whenever he puts a bird up, at some point during that flush or shot process, the bird is well within a shootable distance. So... Uh, that being said, he bumps plenty of birds out of range that, you know, just you hear them and off they go and you never see them or get a shot. But I don't, I just kind of chalk that up to, you know, it's just part of the gamble pretty much. Yeah. Yep. I think you, I think you bring up some really interesting points there because I have, I've, I've actually never, I've never bird hunted with a flushing dog. I've, I've, gotten to be pretty familiar with pointing dogs, at least especially my own, obviously, over the last few years. Uh, I grew up, I grew up grouse hunting without dogs, so that was, that's a whole different conversation, but I, I often think about that. You know, it's really interesting with the pointing dog, in a perfect scenario, my dog goes on point, I walk in, and what I've been trying to do more recently is really trying to circle ahead of the dog, and ultimately I found that if you can pin, if you can pin the bird between you and the dog, you tend to get the best shooting opportunities. I've sort of sort of discovered that by things that I was doing, and then I've heard it from some more experienced grouse hunters, and I started to experiment with it this this season and, and found that to be true. 
the thing with grouse is they don't cooperate, and oftentimes they don't sit you don't, right. You don't say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They don't they don't sit right off the pointed dog's nose, and you can't always head them off like that. But I've often thought about you know the flushing dogs doing what they're doing. The bird is all that bird wants to do is get away from is get away from the flushing dog, and if that direction happens to be towards you, the bird doesn't necessarily know that until hopefully it's too late. So, yeah, I think I think it's it's really just kind of the cool dynamics uh, and the differences between pointing dogs and flushing dogs because you're going to get some awesome shots where that bird is flushing right at you or probably not right at you is the, is the idea. Although that's a, crossing that's a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's happened. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've had more than a few birds come screaming down a tree line and, you know, I probably could have hit them with a tennis racket. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, that, okay. So that's cool. And, and I think, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, so there you go. You let, you let Watson get out there and, and range a little bit and sort of, I've kind of the same way. Like, I mean, I just think, especially with grouse, like it, your dog's going to bump birds. I mean, your dog is absolutely going to bump birds. You, oh, yeah. you hope that. It's just, just going to happen. Yep. Yeah. And so it's you can't beat yourself up over it. You can't beat up the dog. I mean, you might have just come in on the wrong side, whatever. You know, that's, that's how it goes. So I've, I kind of kind of chalk that up in the same way that you do as well. But um, all right, a couple more questions, I guess, on on Watson flushing dogs. So like, so I know every bird is different, but uh, if he's I know you pay close attention to him, and he's say he's making game. He's getting on a bird. I mean, at that point, do you you hope you have time to catch up to him and get up get up there quick? Like, what do you do in in that instance when when his tail starts going and you know he's got bird scent? Well, yeah. So it's um, you know, for, fortunately with him, it's like it's really obvious. You know, it's his his kind of running around demeanor and his I'm on a bird demeanor are are night and day. Um, cool. And I think. What a lot of people, I don't know, I guess I don't know what a lot of people do, but what I know what I've tried to do is pay really close attention to shooting lanes in the woods or natural openings and tree lines and such. Um, I try to make sure, I, I shoot a lot of sporting clays and stuff in the off season. So I try and kind of line myself up to a more natural shooting angle. So say if you're a right handed shooter and let's say Watson's getting birdie, you know, way off to my right. Well, it's really hard as a right-handed shooter to come all the way back to a target that's way far to your right-hand side. So what I'll do is I'll basically just, you know, almost turn my whole body around so my left shoulder is almost pointing right at him. So whenever a bird gets up, I have a much more natural shot angle, if you would, to take at it. Sure. Um, and that's something that took years of screwing up to figure out, if you would. But <laughs> I've gotten, yeah. gotten, way, gotten way better at it now. Um, and then the other thing, too, is, yeah, looking for – like I said, natural shooting lanes, which in the grouse woods, they don't always present themselves. Um, and, but back to the kind of the point of the bird reacting to the dog is it's really important to keep your eyes, um, at eye level, if you would. So if you're, if you're watching him get super, super birdie, well, when a grouse flushes and takes off, it's extremely fast, right? So if you're looking at the point where the bird flushes from, it's going to be way past where you need to be looking to shoot it before you can even like flinch your safety off. So um, I try to make a point to keep my eyes up to where the bird's going to rise to so that when it flushes, I have a much more natural shot process than trying to kind of like race it and chase it with my barrels. Cause that doesn't yeah. work. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I've, I've, I've definitely heard and read that a lot. I think it's something that I struggle with, uh, 
a lot because and it's I think it stems back to when I when I used to hunt without a dog so much I was I was really eyes yeah. on the ground a lot because oh yeah I I needed to I needed to get that was my only leg up on the grouse you know if I could spot him first before before he made a move and that kind of thing so it's I try to break away from it because I've seen the benefits and the advantage of keeping your eyes up at eye level because you're not going to shoot the bird below your below eye level anyways. You know you don't want to, so it's like you better keep those eyes up and and let the bird rise into your field of view. And it, yeah, things come together a lot more naturally that way. Well, yeah, and and it's and it's I was joking. It's hard not you know it's hard not to watch your dog right. Yes. Like your dog's getting all birdie. It's hard not to watch them. And likewise, the kind of cover that grouse like to be in eye level is usually you can't see much so like it's hard not to try and peek under it or look you know it's easy to not keep that in mind in the moment but it's if you can usually the shots you make are much better so yeah yep yeah, i agree I, I think i probably have less of an excuse as as you there because if i'm if i'm walking in on a point i don't really need to watch my dog although sometimes it is fun to watch the dogs on point but yeah. but you know to 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 your point I mean, Watson, he's working a bird up until the moment of the flush. So, so by watching the dog, you 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 can still gain information on you know what what the dog's doing, where the bird might be, that sort of thing. So it's yeah, that's a little different uh, dynamic there too. So that's kind of cool. Oh yeah, and it's just like I said, this is something that takes practice, and you know, kind of to your point. Of course, when I started grouse hunting, I didn't have a dog, so there was. You know, those years of conditioning of, like you said, kind of looking at the ground, and I, I can't tell you how many, you know, clumps of dirt and stumps I snuck up on thinking they were birds and, yep, <laughs> and watching them. <laughs> yep. So it's just something, and you know, I, I still catch myself doing it. When we were, just, we were just out on Monday for a couple hours, and I was watching him work, and I had a bird get up kind of way off to my left where, like, you know, had I been looking where I should have been looking, I might have been able to take a shot at it. But because I was watching him, there was, I, I don't even think I, like, took my safety off my gun. It was just like, oh, that one wins that round, you know, because I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, cool. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's that's a uh, good conversation, fun to fun to talk about some of the differences there and, and what you've seen with Watson. That's awesome. Um, let's transition entirely now. Uh you mentioned it before. You and Watson, uh, you've got a, kind of a little mobile upland hunting headquarters. Talk about a little bit about the van. Where did you Where did you get the idea? And, <laughs> I I get the, and the idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then how did it all come together? And and uh, it seems to be working out for you so far. Oh yeah. So uh, the idea in, of the trip, if you would, kind of, and how we got to the van part goes all the way back to kind of my first season with him when he was a puppy. And, you know, when you grow up here, you know, there's plenty of grouse to shoot and there's a few ducks to get after. But, you know, we don't have Rocky Mountains full of chuckers or tons of cornfields full of pheasants or any of that. And you read about online and everyone always kind of like playfully argues about what's, you know, the king of the uplands, right? What's what's the best bird to hunt? Um, and I used to always think like, well, you know, it'd be fun to do that and, It'd be fun to go here and do this or go there and try that and see what it's like. And I kind of mused about, you know, what if you could take a, a whole season and do it all? Or if you could take, you know, a couple big chunks of time off during the season to try kind of each thing. And it was a, an, a serious idea that I never really put like any serious effort into because it's kind of like, well, it's, you know, how do you take 
six weeks off of work during the fall. You know what I mean? It's just a, it's, it's pretty easy to talk yourself out of it. Um, but I kind of passively looked at, you know, different like, okay, well, what if you did a, a small camper and a pickup or, you know, a really big camper and a pickup or a pickup with a truck camper or any, any of the various ways you could go and be somewhere out in the, you know, the mountains or the prairies or whatever for a few weeks. Um, and in doing all that, I had stumbled across kind of the, the van living movement that's really prevalent kind of out west and in the southern part of the U.S. where people would take vans and convert them into little mini campers. And most of them are much nicer than mine. They put way more work into them than I did. But, you know, that's kind of, you know, when I found that idea, it's kind of like, man, it's, you know, that's a, both financially and whatnot, that's a much more accessible feeling thing, if you would. You know, when you start talking about campers and such, those are, big and if you're only going to use them for a few weeks you know then what the hell do you do with them for the rest of the year but you know vans is just another vehicle you know you can park that in a driveway or whatever and so it was kind of an idea all the way back you know four or five years ago and then fast forward to kind of this previous winter fall i was at a point kind of personally and financially where i could just like make it happen so i was like well screw it you know i'm 30 with no kids or no wife or any of that. You know, I don't have anything that I'm beholden to really in my life. So I just was like, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to make it happen. So <laughs> went and went and found a van. And, you know, the irony is that it's probably the nicest vehicle I've ever owned. Um, the first thing <laughs> I did was completely tear everything out of it and just completely tear it to bits. But, <laughs> um, so yeah, so that was how that, how we got there. And, I essentially spent about probably about four months building it out. So we, you know, it's a passenger van. So I gutted all the seats out and the interior and all that. Um, I spray foamed the entire body cavity and put about half inch pink foam insulation wherever you, so if anyone's ever looking at the blog, everywhere you see plywood basically has insulation behind it to some degree. Um, and it, the idea was just kind of like, okay, how do I get everything I need to live out of it? You know, not comfortably because it's a van, right? It's, you know, I can't stand up in it. It's some everyday <laughs> yeah. niceties I have to live without. But, um, you know, it's kind of like I went down the checklist. I'm like, okay, if I minimalize my gun selection to these and I, you know, just a couple pairs of boots and, you know, you're right down the list and drew it out on graph paper probably about 20 or 30 times, just kind of fiddling with different ideas. Um, I ended up actually just kind of building it as I went, which is the funny part because I had all these plans drawn out and I didn't use any of them at the end of it really. So, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, now in its finished state, it's like we were talking earlier, you know, I can keep it comfortably warm down to about the high teens, low twenties at night. So I can sleep in it comfortably in some pretty cold weather. Um, it's got about 145 ish amp hours of DC power with, I got two batteries mounted on the frame underneath it. And those are hooked up to the alternator and a solar panel. So they recharge themselves whenever the sun's out or whenever the motor's running and got a power inverter to run a mini fridge and, you know, got a pretty comfortable cot in there that I sleep on and all my clothes and gear are tucked in all over the place. And there's, uh, some stuff we do without, but you know, it's nothing that has really held us back so far. So awesome. Awesome. Yeah, it's uh I had a chance to check out uh check out the blog and kind of you've got some you got some more detailed descriptions on kind of what you've done to it and there's some some cool pictures. 
Um, we'll mention this again later, but give us the name of your blog right now, uh, just so we have it. Yeah, it's scottandwatson.wordpress.com, and Scott and Watson just spelled out as one big word. So it's uh, I try to keep it pretty updated. I'm trying to stay on kind of like a once a week, you know, where we're at, what we've been up to, you know, get some good pictures up there for people to see. Uh, it's a little tricky to do that sometimes because uploading pictures over a cell phone connection in the middle of the woods doesn't always work so well. So we have to kind of – the once a week is a loose commitment, we'll put it that way. Yeah, it's kind of like me with this podcast. I I want to do I want to do one once a week, and I've actually been pretty good about it. But I know how that goes. It's uh you know, think, especially I've tried to do it where you know I've gone on hunting trips and and wanted to wanted to get blog posts up, and I think you've done a good job of it because you've 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 stuck to it pretty well, and you've captured you really captured the season, um you know, and and being that you and I hunt a lot of the same areas i i kind of was like reliving the season as i was going through your blog and i remember back to opening weekend in the grouse woods and it was hot and and crazy and then it was you know pouring, we had it was our, pouring rain i got i got poured on when i shot my first bird of the season yeah <laughs> which is yeah you you got you got lucky because that bird probably wasn't planning on being out and out for too long or did you flush him out of a pine tree or something no it was in i you know like back to the kind of we all have our and we've all got our favorite spots. There's actually uh, my buddy and I who goes with me from time to time. We started at, I kind of like to start on, on the trail that Watson got his first grouse ever on, which is oh, cool. really not that far out of town. So <laughs> it's funny because it gets hunted a lot. And I actually just parked the van like right at the, the gate to the forest road the night before and just camped there. <laughs> so I was like, no one's taking my spot for me opening morning. This is where my dog got his first bird. This is where I want to start. No one's getting it. Um, and while I was having coffee waiting for my buddy to get there, like two other people pulled up, like, all right. I'm like, yep, we got it. Go keep, keep going, please. You know? So, <laughs> um, and the first stretch of that is a bunch of really tall, mature pine trees. Um, probably about 10 acres of them. And they, they butt up to some, some smaller poplars and a little swampy patch. And, Early season and late season, there's always one to like five birds in there somewhere. So <laughs> it's kind of a kind of a cherry picked opening day spot, if you would. Um, and there was three in there that we got. I think we got two of them. So cool. Well, you got to have those spots, you know, especially on opening day. You never know what the conditions are going to be like. And clearly, this year was. Yeah, I remember it well. It was. I don't think. Well, actually, yeah, there was rain, and my dad and I drove out of it. We were in Wisconsin on opening weekend, and we we pulled okay. up to the first spot we were going to hunt, and it started raining, so then we drove out of it. But still, it was hot, muggy, wet, not, yeah, not I just, good I just, hunting conditions. I just hunted it in. We were already out. We had the dogs out. And I was like, what are we going to do, not hunt and go back to the – no. So – well, you you spent the night parked in front of the gate, so you might as well go. Exactly, spot, right? I was kind of I was committed. <laughs> I wasn't going to hunt it for ten minutes and call it a day. So <laughs> that's awesome. All right, well, cool. So if people want to go find out more about the van and see the pictures, they can do that. Scott and Watson dot wordpress dot com. Um, now I think let's kind of get into let's get into. Uh, I think it's really cool. Like you. It's probably, I imagine it's probably not much, or it's it's much like your plans for the van. Like, you have an idea of how you would attack the season, um, but 
clearly it's already happened when you're out in Montana. You, you can't plan for everything, and you've you've had the freedom to adapt and adjust along the way, which is pretty cool. So let's do walk us through a little bit of the timeline, uh, you know, where you were when you started, and then how you wound up here, and then where you're planning to go next. Sure, yeah. So anyway, so we went, and like we mentioned earlier, you know, September 1st, across the upper part of the country anyway, you can do lots of stuff in different places on September 1st, right? Like if you're in, if you're in Minnesota, you can hunt doves and geese open September 1st, and every it's got something. Um, we just, well, I decided, I guess, Watson goes wherever. You <laughs> um, I decided we were going to go to Montana just because I had never been out there, and I wanted to see it. Um, and they had sharp tails, Hungarian partridge, and checker partridge are all open, essentially. Actually, I think the, their grouse seasons were open, too, but we weren't in those areas, really. So um, the point of going there was just to go do it, just to go see it. Um, you know, I had talked to one of the Montana Fish and Game offices, and they were super helpful with kind of like, you know, where to go and kind of what to do. So I knew in going out there that there'd be a lot of resources to help me figure it out. Um, the flip side of that was basically all of Montana was on fire this year, which mm-hmm. is you know, and a super bad drought. And I knew that going out there, but again, kind of like grouse hunting in the rain. I wasn't going to not go, you know what I mean? Like, it's, yep. <laughs> that's where I wanted to go. And the whole state wasn't on fire, just basically the western half of it. So, um, so it's kind of like, well, we'll just, we'll go and we'll make what we can make out of it. And like you said, I have the, the freedom and the luxury to just kind of adapt as we go, which not everyone has, but, um, so we went out there and I went to Lewistown, Montana. It's kind of in the middle of the state. And got a walk-in access map and, uh, you know, kind of got the, the lowdown on where to go, what to look for, all that. And it went pretty well. You know, we, we kind of figured it out. Part of going was just to kind of figure out how to hunt those big open prairie stretches, it was, again, with the lab, which is not ideally suited to those kind of conditions. Um, but we made a go of it. We figured it out and found some birds. And then... Basically, we left there a little earlier than I wanted to, but they were, the state was closing down a lot of their block management and wildlife management areas because of the droughts and fire conditions. So we were kind of like, we were essentially running out of places we could hunt without knocking on doors every single day. So, um, we just kind of came back to Minnesota, which was the original plan was to get back here for the rough grouse opener, which is the middle of September. Um, so we got, Back here a little bit early for that, and I kind of noodled around goose hunting a little bit. It was pretty half-heartedly, but something to do, you know. <laughs> what, else, yep, yep. What, else, what else was I going to do, right? Um, <laughs> I got some cool duck scouting in in the meantime. You know, I got to see a stretch of the St. Louis River that probably doesn't ever really see people on it. So, um, But anyway, so then we got uh, Rough Grouse open in Minnesota, September I think the 16th or whatever that Saturday was. And then the plan originally anyway, was from then till essentially the Minnesota's deer opener to be just in greater northeast Minnesota. So rough grouse, you know, waterfowling here and there, woodcock when they came through, and just kind of going where they were. You know, again, was uh, much discussed, the Minnesota rough, or, you know, the, the drumming counts from the spring. And you know, yep. I read on plenty of social media outlets and forum posts about people complaining, oh, there's birds here, or, oh, there's no birds here, and, you know, my, my take on that was that it was still a pretty good year, it's just people weren't really adapting to the weather conditions to go find the birds where they were, 
in a nutshell. Um, you know, Watson and I had there was plenty of places that didn't have them, but whatever. We we, we did just fine finding them. So, um, but now that we're kind of at that point where the season up here is pretty much kind of wound down. And granted, we could sit up here and hunt rock grouse till you know the first weekend of January, but yeah. uh, the next kind of leg, sort of like you mentioned earlier, we're kind of in a, a transitional phase where we're basically heading south. Um, we're going to stop off in southwest Minnesota for a little bit and kind of hunt something with one of my buddies who lives down there. We're kind of <laughs> figuring out if that's going to be geese or pheasants or what we're going to do. Uh, not really a – we're not great planners, I guess you could say. We're going to kind of scout it out and figure it out as we go. Um, from there, I've kind of got my eyes set on Kansas, mostly because they were, well, reported anyway. We'll see what we find. <laughs> um, kind of a 25% uptick in their pheasant hatch, and apparently they had a pretty good quail hatch this year as well. So the idea being I could get to Kansas, and they have, much like Minnesota's walk-in access program, they got a lot of similar kind of stuff there with landowners, so I can uh, kind of park myself in the western two-thirds of that state and just kind of go hog wild with pheasants and quail and uh, they're also right kind of in the smack dab of a big waterfowl migration corridor, so I'll have that to do too. So, um, Excellent. Yeah, and then the other flip side to that is that'll kind of put me within striking distance of Utah and Nevada because I want to go hunt chuckers in the Rockies at least once, if only for, you know, three or four days or whatever we can make out of it. Um, and then, like we mentioned earlier, finishing up in Arizona in the desert. So Kansas was kind of my, like, circle on the map where it puts me kind of back in the prime time season for them anyway. And then once I'm down there, I can figure out what I, what we can make down there. And it puts me in, you know, not half the country away from the other places I want to be. So. Very cool. That's yeah. So that's, that's kind of the, uh, that's the groundwork that's been laid. And, uh, you know, as you've had to do along the way, you've kind of adjusted here and there, and I'm, sh- I'm sure you will be making more adjustments with, you know, whether it's based on no doubt. timeline, <laughs> conditions, birds, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty cool, but it goes to show that it can be done. I mean, if you, with the right, uh, the right uh, preparation, or uh, I guess you could say lack of preparation in your part a little bit sometimes, but but you just got to be, you have to be opportunistic, and you got to you got to take yeah. what's available to you, right? Well, yeah, and I think you know you you could probably use Minnesota's grouse season this year as the perfect example. So, you know the the it was really really hot really early, and the weather didn't that kind of high average temp didn't really break until about like halfway through October, if you would. Yeah. And then, you know, the, your traditional grouse October weather really only lasted like a week and a half, if you ask me. Um, and then it shifted to like winter, like overnight. So, you know, the, the people who were saying, they were, and not to throw mud at other hunters, but the people who were saying they weren't, you know, oh, we're not finding any birds, there's no birds out with it, right? Well, you know, they were probably, in my opinion, and from what I saw in the woods, is they were hunting October, you know, traditional October grouse covers, when although it was October on the calendar, the weather conditions and the conditions in the woods were still like middle late September, which you know you don't find birds in the same places in September that you do in October. So, you know if you hunted those kind of early late season covers when it was 75 degrees in the middle of the day, you were still going to find some stuff instead of you know wandering through a poplar stand wondering why there was nothing in there. So. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's a good observation. I do think that happened to quite a few people and 
and uh, you know, coming from somebody that that spent a fair amount of time in the woods woods this fall, I mean, I think it's pretty credible. So yeah, I think it was. I mean, it's, in this region for sure, it was just just an odd odd year for weather. And uh, yeah, it took a lot of took a lot of adjusting to figure things out. And then, like you said, things everything did align sort of late late in October, and then it sort of felt like, oh yeah, this is what we've all been waiting for. And then boom, it came and went just like that. Yep. Yeah, it was such an abrupt ending to that uh, type of woods, you know, and that that setting this year it was it was crazy. I mean, I was I was up uh, deer hunting northern northern Minnesota last weekend and. There's legitimately like in some of the clear cuts that we hunt, I was up to my waist in snow in certain oh, yeah. spots, which was unbelievable. I mean, it's not like that everywhere under the under the pine trees. It's probably no more than shin high, but it was it was crazy. So yeah, we we uh, you you are lucky that you're just gonna move yep. on and, and just go leaving more pro- running away yep. from it. Yep. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's awesome. But, that's very cool. Yeah, and I, and I think that the the willingness to adapt to and now granted I'm doing it obviously on the large scale of going across the country. But you know, if you're an upland hunter and you're out there and you're walking a certain kind of cover and not finding birds, you know, I think you you're doing yourself an injustice if you just keep beating down that same kind of cover because like, you know, they should be here. If you know what I mean? Like you Yep. You, if you adapt to the conditions and go search out where the birds want to be, not where you want them to be, you know, just I think the mindset of being willing to do that will, you know, bears a lot more success than just kind of going through the motions, if you would. Yeah, cool. Um, I was going to ask you, you're obviously doing the blog, and so you're recording some of this stuff, so you know other people can view it, but also you're you're taking pictures and re- and writing some of this stuff stuff down, so it'd be cool to look back on. Are you doing anything? In addition, like uh, you keeping track of bird numbers or any anything else, kind of along the way to sort of to sort of record the sort of the journey that you guys are on this season. Um, you know, not in particular. I probably should be though. Um, <laughs> when I first when I first started, I, I kind of thought about doing like some video work, if even just like you know simple GoPro footage or. Um, then you had talked on one of your other podcasts about re- keeping statistics and how you like to. Um, and I just, I know myself well enough to know that even if I tried, I'm not going to keep that up. Like I, yep. I would love to say that I'm the guy who's going to you know, have the flush counter on my lanyard and get back to the van and write it all down. And I'm just, I'm just not going to do it. So I've tried to kind of focus my energy on taking not just a lot of pictures, but good pictures that kind of capture the moments of where we were. And, um, I don't post all of them. You know, I've got probably a couple hundred on my computer and I've, kind of categorize them by weeks or where we were at so I can go back and look at them. And there's other non-hunting stuff we've done along the way that's not up on the blog, like we're in Montana, um, checking out the Fort Peck Reservoir, which is a big, huge body of water. Um, cool. So kind of for my own personal use, I've got some stuff like that where I've kept track of it. But uh, in terms of other things that, you know, would probably be really beneficial, I, I'm not. But, again, I probably should be. <laughs> it's just, you know, I guess uh, my own laziness or my own desire to keep my van life simple. I don't know what it is, but, um, <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's like anything, you know, there's a fine line between, between <laughs> things that feel like a chore. Was that Watson? No, that was his, his sister, his old lady, Eleanor. <laughs> okay, now, Watson right. stayed through a, a, a bombing. He was, uh, <laughs> yeah. 
right. Well, yeah, but like I was saying, it's you know, it's you don't want you don't want things like that, whether it be pic- pictures or journaling or anything like that, to get in the way of you being able to just sit back, kick your feet up, and look around, you know, and take it all in because there's there is something to be said about that, like just living that experience and enjoying it in the moment. So obviously I think we all like to have things that capture those moments and be they pictures or numbers or journal entries, blog posts, all that kind of stuff. It will help you look back. But if you don't take a moment to sit and enjoy it while you're there, those memories aren't going to, they're not going to stir up those feelings that you had. You know, the the pictures won't won't stir up those feelings of you and Watson sitting there outside your van by a fire, having a yeah. beer, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, and to be honest with you, it's like as, as cool as it would be to look back at my, you know, my shooting percentages or my flush counts for certain covers, um, I think at the end of the day, like, I I just don't really care about it, to be honest. Yeah. Like, kind of to your yeah. point about the experience, like, the the being out there is more important than whether I shot three for seven or three for five that day, you know. Um, and and we all know just from hunting certain areas, you know, you, you can kind of have a feel of if a certain cover is holding as many birds as it normally does, or if like, boy, they're really holding this type of stuff this year, you know. And I I guess I just I rely more on that intangible, if you would, than sitting and pouring over a notebook. Um, not to say it wouldn't be beneficial, but I just it's not the way I like to do it, if you would. Yeah, yep, nope, I totally, totally get it, and and that's the beauty of, of up and hunting, you know, I mean, and with a lot of things, you know, you, you can do it, you can shape your own reality, you can do it exactly the way that you want to do it, and you clearly are doing that, so I think it's, uh, yeah. I think it's cool. Um, let's, I mean, so, so one thing that's kind of cool, what you're doing this year, is you're hunting a lot of new states, you're hunting a lot of states for the very first time, uh, you yep. know, you're buying auto, you're buying non-resident licenses. You're hunting covers you've never hunted before. Don't we don't have to go into too much detail, but give like some tips, pointers, like maybe some things that you've learned. Like how do you how do you tackle that? You know, like you, all right, I'm going to Kansas and I'm gonna hunt. You, you know, how are you tackling that animal of where do I go? What do I do? Yeah, so I, I um, so like when we started in Montana, that was a perfect example. Um, I made the mistake of basically hunting too much and not scouting enough, which is kind of a, you know, feels like a misnomer on a hunting trip. Like you're there sure, to chase the yep. birds, like go, go find the management area and get out there. Right. Um, but what I found was that both Watson and I were pretty exhausted after three days and having found very little. Whereas as our 10 days there went on, I kind of noticed like if I had spent say an entire day driving like a greater area, and making some quick footnotes in the book of, okay, I like the cover here and not here. Um, I could have spent our time hunting much more efficiently and just not beating us up, you know, wandering over open coolies looking for nothing, as it turned out in a few places. <laughs> and then, so then, like, you know, fast forward to now when I'm going south and eventually down to Kansas, you know, it's like I've got that in the back of my mind of, okay, now I can look online and look at where all the walk-in access and management areas and rivers and all that stuff. And um, like I know you talked, I think it was on maybe the on X one podcast about how much how much Google Maps time we all spend in the winter. You know, like in our kind of yeah. like our little hit list. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I've I've done that ever since I realized there was a satellite overlay, and I was like, oh, it's like a it's like a sportsman spy satellite. This is awesome, you know. But you can't like what I learned in Montana and going into Kansas was that like I could sit here and spend hours 
pointing at Google Maps pictures of Kansas, but it's not going to tell me anything until I get there, to be honest with you. Um, I can think it does, but what I've come to learn is that, like, you know, that, that boots on the ground time or that driving around scouting time is what really tells you what you need to be looking for. And likewise, when you say, say you find your cover, your management area, you know, right, this is it. I'm going to hunt this one, you know, now or in the morning or whatever you've chosen for the day is to kind of not marry yourself to a preconceived notion of how you're going to do it. So once you get out there, you know, you walk your, walk your area, walk your cover, let the, and like if you find nothing, like that tells you just as much information as if you found a bunch of birds, right? So if you did it and you don't find anything, well, the next cover you walk should be totally different because obviously you picked this one and there were no birds there for a reason. So <laughs> you should not go find the next one that looks exactly like it and then walk that and be like, boy, we're not finding anything. It's like, well, of course you're not because you didn't find anything the first time. Why did you think you were the second time? So, um, and then likewise, tr- you know, kind of, kind of trust what you learn and kind of trust your gut feeling as you go. So if you're in a, like what I found with like say sharp tails in Montana, as everyone was telling me, they see them in the big cut wheat fields out there. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, you're telling me in my one lab to hunt a thousand acre stubble field? Like, that's just, it's not going to happen. You know, like, you get you out of your mind? Um, and we tried it once, and I'm like, this is, this is stupid. Like, what are we doing out here? You know, like, is any bird's going to see me coming from the horizon, basically? Like, <laughs> we're not going to get anything. Um, and so I started thinking about, you know, okay, birds are, you know, no matter where a grouse or a, a game bird is, you know, they need a water source and a cover source. And so instead of hunting the stubble fields, we started hunting the coulee bottoms where I would drive around looking for ones that had any kind of green vegetation in them because the drought was so bad out there. I figured if there's a, you know, a bush and grass that's all greened up, that means there's at least some hydration in there to some degree. Um, so instead of hunting all the surrounding landscape, we kind of started hunting those little focal points and that's when we actually started finding birds. Um, which is not something that anybody out there mentioned whatsoever. We just had to figure that out. So when I go to, when I go to Kansas, it's going to be, granted I'll be hunting, you know, upland stuff will be all pheasants and quail and pheasants I'm much more familiar with. But likewise, if I go out there and on a certain kind of pheasant cover and don't find any birds, like I'm going to start, you know, being a little more honest with myself. Okay. You want the birds to be here, but they're not. So why don't we go find a different piece of land that gives us at least something different to try out? Cool. So, all right. So, yeah, a lot of stuff there, a lot of helpful information. Um, I thought of, was this the first time, I mean, is this the first season that you've ever upland hunted outside of the state of Minnesota? Yes. So that was part of, that was part of the fun of it, too, was, you know, like, let's just go and do it, see what it's like. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's I think that's probably one of the you know it'd be one thing if oh you'd been to Montana before you'd been to Kansas and you'd been here and there and you were just going to string them all together but no you've you're doing this is the first time you've ever hunted these birds you know outside of Minnesota and you're 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 just doing it and I think that's that's cool it can absolutely be done and you had some cool stories on the blog about you know you mentioned the one guy that you were parked out in Montana and he pulled up and you knew he was a bird hunter. I think this happens a lot where you see the stick. Well, we we, we know something. what each other looks like. Yeah. We know what we yeah. look like. Yeah. <laughs> and you, and, and you, you offered us some coffee and, and he gave you some tips, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And actually that, that like half hour or whatever I spent talking with him, that was the most helpful, like 30 minutes of that whole trip, to be honest with you. He had, 
he had more to tell me. And again, he he was full of the kind of like, don't do these twenty things and just focus on this kind of tips. And that's what yeah. that's what inevitably kind of led me to finding the whole coolie bottoms with water in them idea. So yeah, so bird hunter to bird hunter. That's that's uh, that's what it's all about right there. Awesome. Uh, what kind of gun do you shoot, Scott? I mean, did you bring, uh, did you bring, you got more than one gun in the truck or what's, two. what's I got that two. like? <laughs> it's okay. a pretty, uh, no, and again, that was, you know, kind of the gear selection choice. I went, the predominant upland gun is a Beretta 686 Silver Pigeon 1. It's a 20 gauge, but it's a fuel model with 30 inch barrels, which oh, is something nice. you don't see. Yeah, it's awesome. I love it. And it's something you don't, you know, you see the field models at 26 and 28s. Um, but I got the chance to shoot one when I worked down at the hunt club and it's that, that little bit extra of barrel weight smooths the swing of such a light gun out quite a bit. So, um, you know, grouse hunting, it's not such a big deal, even with some of the angles and stuff a flushing dog gives me. But when looking at, you know, potentially longer shots at pheasants or the sharp tails we found, uh, it, I found that it really helped, you know, on some long sustained lead kind of stuff. So plus a 20 gauge. One, I went with that mostly for the, the gun weight, cause, you know, we're walking a lot. <laughs> we were walking a lot yeah. for like six months. Um, and then plus, you know, any, any upland bird, you know, your male rooster pheasant is about as tough as an upland bird gets, right? And your typical, yeah. you know, ounce and a quarter, 12 gauge pheasant load can kill just about any pheasant out there, in my opinion. I know some people shoot the really hot three inch stuff. Um, I have yet to see a need for that, but whatever. Personally, yeah. own personal yep. um, and likewise a three inch twenty gauge shells to so the three inch magnum field loads carry an ounce and a quarter payload. So it was kind of that idea that I could load it down to like a three quarter and three quarter ounce quail load and then all the way up to an ounce and a quarter pheasant load and still keep that really light balanced gun that I like. So um so that does the lion's share of the work and then I've got my twelve gauge H seventy express that I've had for basically since I started hunting. I was refer to that as the dirty work gun because that does all the waterfowl <laughs> stuff. I, you know, yeah, anything that I don't want to really beat my Beretta up with, but I also treat my Beretta like a tool and not like a fancy gun. So I'm not really like when it was pouring rain on opening day, I had that with me and I was not going to go back and change guns. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I. I mean, I'm I'm the same way with. I mean, I like I like guns, but I'm. I don't have any that I I don't have any that I don't use, that's for sure. And my my first gun was an eight seventy and I still have it too. But I I think it's uh interesting the thirty inch barrels on the Breda, because I really had my eyes open to the to the longer barrels. Like I used to shoot I had some shorter barrel guns and you know, the the stuff gets thrown around, like it's quicker and the short barrels are better and Oh, it's a bunch and, that's a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> yeah, I'm kinda I'm have kinda you, have I'm you kinda ever won myself swung your gun barrel into a tree because I've never done it. I have, but not on the last two inches. You know, okay, yeah. you can you can bump your hand or forearm or gun into something, but I think the point there is if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. It doesn't yeah, matter it's, if it's doesn't matter yeah, whether it's. I have that argument with someone. Yeah, it's like when the gun's in the way, it's like the whole gun's in the way. It's not the barrel length. You know what I mean? Like the the whole thing is cumbersome in the brush, not just the length of the tubes. So, correct. 
Yeah, yeah. So that's how I was gonna I was gonna sort of highlight that that you're you're carrying a 30 inch barrel gun through the grouse woods and and you're no worse for the wear. And yeah, I, I have absolutely seen a difference, especially on some of those. The you know every once in a while you get a grouse where you're really swinging on it and and a, a shorter gun, a short barrel gun, you're you're It'll, you'll stop on a dime and you'll shoot behind the bird and, and oh yeah totally. you know, if it's if it's balance it doesn't you know and it's not even so much the length but it's the balance if you have the balance in the right spot you will you will more easily follow through and and make better shots so it's just an interesting thing to to chat about well and you know if you're the average guy like a lot of us you know when I bought that Beretta. It's like almost a $2000 gun you know a lot of us don't have the money to buy a lot of different guns for a lot of different things so yep. you're going to buy a gun that's that nice. Like, I like to shoot a lot of clays, and, like, a 26-inch barrel grouse gun is an awful thing to shoot clays with. It's just terrible. Whereas that, you know, carries through to that venue or, like, you know, up on an open prairie, it's perfectly at home doing that, too. So, you know, I don't, I don't have the funds to have a bunch of specialized tools, if you will. So I had to, that was also a consideration when I went with those. Yep, for sure. So... All right, well, we'll uh, we'll kind of wrap things up here. But you are uh, you were we were chatting before a little bit. You're thinking about possibly pointing the van. Do you have a name for the van, by the way? Um, I put bird van on the side of it with some boat stickers from Home Depot. So I guess we All call right. it that. It's a <laughs> bird van. <laughs> yeah, just uh, I know it's kind of one of those like I had to name it something. And I don't know I jokingly had some ideas like the Millennium Pheasant. Or the grouse feel. <laughs> oh yeah, we had all of my buddies and I probably about half a dozen, but I don't know how I settled on. I think one day I was just kind of bored and I just went and bought. It. I'm like, well, we're gonna call it this, so that's that. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, it seems like yeah, I could see you know, especially as you as you uh, make some more memories with the van, like it's uh, it's probably gonna get some you know maybe some more decorations like maybe by next season you'll have somebody like totally fully wrap it and decorate it and have 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 it bird band out for sure maybe it's got like a really modest sticker collection going on the passenger side uh rear quarter panel and i'm kind of there you go as, as i'm going picking up a couple extras and sticking them on there so we're going to we're going to keep that going and see how far that grows uh do you have your you're well into your journey here, and I know you're going to have a lot of good memories. Do you have, I mean, a couple highlights so far? Like, you, I, I imagine a lot of them get touched on in the blog. I mean, you talked about the day that you found the, the moose shed out in the woods. I mean, that's really cool. Like, a couple of your top highlights so far. Well, that's, that's even still in the van, too. I've yet to put that anywhere. <laughs> nice, nice. It's the most, that's like the most impractical thing, but it's too cool. I don't, like, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how I can keep it in there, like, permanently. And not, yeah, I'd have a hard time parting with that, I think. Yeah. So, and we'll see. We'll see. Like, right now, it just kind of sits, like, on top of some pull-it-up clothes on my dresser. But, uh, um, yeah, I was, what was your question again? I'm sorry. I just, well, just, just like, cool. It throws me off the yeah, rail. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just your, you know, your, your favorite moment so far and, uh, you know, where, so far what you've done, you know? Yeah. That one was pretty up there, honestly, because it's, uh, like, yeah. the blog post, I mean, I'd, not have my best shooting performance day of the day before and you know kind of back to that keeping statistics thing i didn't need a written down notebook to tell me how poorly i shot the previous <laughs> day i was a look on watson's face and my vest full of empty shells told that story but um yeah that that day was pretty cool and actually the day after it honestly we had 
kind of like a we kept it to like a half day because Watson was getting pretty tired. Um, but we shot three roughs and a spruce grouse that actually flushed really well and didn't just like you know sit on a tree and look at me. Um, yeah. I would say those two days together were were pretty awesome. Um, and that second day too, where we were out, we were out in a really kind of remote stretch of the woods up there, and you know we like I had the van parked like in this little clear cut kind of pull off area and like we just kind of hung out there like I cleaned my birds and I made lunch and you know it was just uh kind of like just wrap the day up and let him sleep and I think I cleaned my van out a little bit it was just it was a nice time you know we just got to kind of chill out and hang out and um some of the days out duck hunting were kind of cool um actually when I was down on my uncle's farm down in Dundas that was a fun day uh one of my buddies joined me down there and we we actually found some pheasants later too, but they were all they were all hens, so they got a free pass, you know. I like those. I yeah, that. that's one, cool. One was a rooster, but he was the uh, probably the smallest rooster I've ever seen of pheasant hunting. Wow. So we, we we let him go too. But <laughs> yeah, I imagine you've uh, you've had quite a few quite a few uh, relaxing evenings. By the well, I guess you don't have a tailgate, but outside the van, cooking, <laughs> cooking, bir- cleaning birds, cooking birds, maybe having a beer and and chilling with Watson. I imagine you've got a lot of those in in your uh, memory book for for so far this season. Yeah, well, yeah, we can kind of set up a cool little. Like, well, there's not really the back area of the van's all storage, but the uh, the side doors, and you open those up and you know kind of set a nice little camp around there. It's uh, it's pretty chill. It's all right. Yeah, didn't you, you 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 said you had an awning on it too, don't you? Ah, sort of. You know, that's one of those things that's like you know a great idea, but you never end up doing it. Is I've got like <laughs> basically a tarp with some tent poles that I can set up as an awning. Okay. Uh, I have I, I put it together once to do it. Like, oh yeah, this would be cool. And then I have yet to ever use it since. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you you live and you learn. You you learn what uh, what things you use and what things you don't, and that's how. I, you uh, keep getting your better system dialed in, I imagine. Oh yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. And there's been there's been quite a few, you know, a lot of little stuff where you you buy it thinking oh, this would be great, I'll be use it, and then a week later you're like, why why did I get this? You know, you don't you know, have a lot of extra room, so it's like if something doesn't carry its weight usage wise after about a week, I tend to kind of send it on down the road. But yep, sure that makes sense. All right, Scott. Well. I think uh I think we covered covered a bunch of it and uh I really appreciate you uh coming on the podcast. I uh, hope to keep in touch and I'll definitely be following along on your blog. So for for listeners again that's scottandwatson.wordpress.com. That's uh, the place. Yeah. All right, yeah, if people want to follow along. You got some really cool pictures for sure. Um and, you know, they hit home for me cuz cuz I I I know a lot of the areas that you've been hunting in so far but uh, i'll be curious to see uh see what the next legs of your journey look like and uh and what you yeah, what you find and what you run into yeah <laughs> but uh yeah no it's going to be fun this is this is a good time so yeah viewers check it out and like i said once you know i uh i don't shy away from you know sharing our not so great experiences so if you're thinking about you know like kind of you mentioned hunting out of state for the first time and like trying out new things. I'm more than happy to share on my blog things that didn't work. So if you hear, you know, oh, this would be a good idea, but, you know, maybe maybe it didn't go so well for this guy or maybe it did go so well for him. So um, definitely say, I don't like to paint a, a sugar-coated picture all the time. So. Yeah, yep, I think I think you, you've done a good job of that 
of uh, just explaining, you know, just kind of how things have gone, whether it's for better or for worse. And I uh, imagine people will find that helpful, especially uh, when you're uh, when you're in an area that that uh, they might be interested in. So very cool. Well, yeah, like I said, Scott, thanks again. Good luck to you and Watson on the rest of your journey. Hope you guys have a blast. I'll be uh, following along, and uh, we'll have to keep in touch. All right, man. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Take care. Safe travels. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.